Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. Whether they are slave or free, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ascends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. For your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. Obedience. Obedience. Who likes to be obedient? Usually when when we're told to be obedient, it's because we're asked to do something that we don't want to do. My kids love jumping on my couch. They love jumping on my couch. It doesn't matter how many times I tell them that jumping on the couch, like, this is not okay. This is not, like, jump-free. Like, this is a jump-free zone. This is not like the jump zone. We're not on a trampoline. That's not what we bought this for. This is our couch. No matter how many times it seems like I tell my kids this, I walk out of the room and I walk back in. Someone's like running, kind of, you know, like, like loping like a deer kind of across. Well, I'm not really jumping down. Your feet are on the couch, man. They're on the cushions. That's not where they go. We don't jump on the couch. Obedience. Listening. How many times do I got to tell my kids? Seems like every time, like all the time. That's, that's how many times, just all the time. Our text this morning touches on two areas of life in which God is calling us to obedience. The first is children to their parents, which is probably the last thing that kids want to hear, right? Wait, you want us to obey and, and then the Bible wants us to obey you? Like this game is rigged. This is rigged. And I, I totally get it. I get that. But part of being obedient is recognizing that the person who is giving you instruction is not doing it to abuse you, but for your benefit. Not doing it to abuse you, but for your benefit. I ask my children if they understand why I don't want them jumping on the couch. They know it's partially because I I don't want the couch to get ruined, right? Like, we just got this thing. Let's let it last a year, for crying out loud. Like, let's let that happen anyway. I don't want them breaking the springs or or, or messing things up. But, But the bigger issue is that I don't want them putting their heads through a window or their body through the coffee table or into the wall or into the bookshelf. I don't want blood on my carpet. No, that's more than just that. But I don't, I don't want them to hurt themselves, right? It's, it's for their own protection. My, my instruction for them are not given simply to bring me joy, but to bring them joy, to keep them healthy, to keep them safe, 
to help him grow into mature, strong, young men with as few trips to the emergency room as possible. Our passage talks about that as well this morning, about parents, our desires for our children. It talks about how as fathers, we're not supposed to exasperate our children. We exasperate our children, we provoke them to anger through severe and relentless discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, inconsistent or unfair rules, constant criticism or humiliation or insensitivity to their weaknesses, fears, and needs. We know our kids. We know the the pain. We know where they hurt. We know where to attack, and this this passage is telling us not to attack. We know, so lay off. Don't exasperate your kids. This passage isn't saying anything groundbreaking to either the children or the parents. It's saying, hey kids, listen to your parents. Submit to their authority and trust that they have your best intentions at heart. And then I love how in the passage it says, this is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well for you. So that it may go well for you. It pays to listen to your parents. And hey, parents, love your kids. Love your kids. Love them enough to be firm yet gentle. Love them enough to bring them to church. Love them enough to pass on your beliefs. Love your kids. The second area of life in which God is calling us to obedience that our text touches on this morning is the relationship between slaves and masters. Now we hear that and immediately we have issues, like right away. What is going on here? And like some of our texts last week, this text has been used to justify some pretty awful things, namely slavery. This text has been used to like, yeah, no, see, it says in the Bible that slaves are supposed to obey us, so get on it, man. Like, let's get going. Bible's okay with this stuff. That's, it's been used to justify really bad things. And, and so we have to understand what's really going on here before we can truly dissect what Paul is talking about. So while we know that there was mass mistreatment of slaves during Bible times, under Roman law, as as a slave, a slave was a thing to be owned, bought, and sold, and it wasn't seen as, as a legal person. We see that there were major slave rebellions, such as the one that, led, that was led by Spartacus. But all of this, all of, all of this understanding of slavery was in the pre-Christian times. These recorded situations were taking place between like 140 to 70 BC. It's in the pre-Christian times. At the time of the writing of of Ephesians, the slave situation was much different. It was a lot different. During this time, slaves under Roman law could generally count on being set free. They knew that at some point they were going to be set free. Very few reached old age. In fact, it became pretty trendy to set your slaves free. It it kind of became this movement among uh, the upper class in Roman society. They just started, yeah, we're just going to start letting them go. We're we're setting all our slaves free. And it, it... it kind of like became a bit of an issue with the economy uh, because as, as this was happening, it was happening at such a rate that Augustus Caesar introduced legal restrictions to curb the trend. So slave owners were like, we're going to let our people go. And the government was like, no, you can't. There's too many. We're, we're, too many people are getting set free. We've got to like, we're going to start putting some restrictions on this. But despite the efforts of Caesar 
Inscriptions indicate that almost 50% of slaves were freed before the age of 30. And what is more, while slaves remained his master's possession, he could own property. He could invest and save to purchase his own freedom. We also must understand that being a slave did not indicate one's social class. Slaves in Ephesus were regularly given the same social status as their owners. And they dressed and looked like the same as a free person. So it was basically impossible to tell who was a slave and who wasn't a slave based on outward appearance. A slave could be a custodian, a salesman, or a CEO. Many slaves lived in a different house than their owners. Added to all of this, people often sold themselves into slavery as a means of obtaining Roman citizenship and gaining entrance into society. Slavery in Rome in the first century was very, very different, much more humane and civilized than slavery practiced in this country not so long ago. So let this be very clear. The Bible does not condone slavery. The relationship that Paul is writing to the Ephesians about is much closer to the relationship between an employee and an employer than it is to what we know and understand as slavery today. So with that knowledge, how do we understand what Paul is writing? Paul is recognizing the daily struggle in the workplace. Doing what we have to do and not necessarily what we want to do. All of that within the moral boundaries of the gospel, of course. Right? If your job is like telling you, well, you've got to go sin now. Right? It's, time, it's time for you to go and do this, this sin. Then, then Paul will be telling you to find another job. Like, that's, not, that's not what we should be doing. Right? Go find, go, go find different work. Don't, don't buckle down and, and do your job to the best, best of your ability. Like that, that's not what he's saying. Paul is telling us to obey those that have been put in authority over us. Those who have given us jobs. Who has given us work. To show them respect. To honor them. That, that we're to follow their directions, their instructions. Not only to win their favor, but to honor God. And he has some instruction for the employers as well. He He reminds them that in the eyes of God, we are all equal. Just because they've put in or they've been put in a position of more responsibility does not make them more acceptable or give them more worth in the eyes of God. And so the employee should be treated with respect, not just because they deserve it, but to honor God. To honor God. That is really the central theme of obeying, isn't it? That's what this passage makes clear. We each have our roles, children, parents, employees, employers, etc. And Paul is calling on each of us to obediently fill the role that we have been given. And while there is recognition of the benefits to obedience here on earth, the true motivation is to come from our desire to bring honor to God, to glorify our God. Paul is saying that by treating others with respect, by honoring each other, no matter what role we may play in society, by being a good neighbor, by being an obedient child, by being a gracious parent, by being a hardworking employee, by being a forgiving employer, we are honoring God. Now, this is the kind of thing that it can be easy to to talk about in church on Sunday, but not as easy to put into practice in our daily lives. 
You know, it's not hard for me to stand here and encourage you all to be model employees, you know, and, and we take that in and, and we nod our heads, obviously. You know, the Bible is instructing us in this way. And then our boss does something out of line, right? He, he makes us work on the weekend or gives the promotion to a less deserving coworker. You know, he seems to, to pick on you for no reason. And, and more and more we feel like they don't deserve our best. They don't deserve our honor or respect. They aren't honoring us. Why should we honor them? Or as employers, you know, we look at our employees and wonder how we ever hired such a lazy bunch of scrubs. And so we let them know how they are making us feel by doing things like like having them come into work on Saturday, giving them extra paperwork, assigning them to the task that we know they don't like. And as kids, there are times we look at our parents and think, forget this. Forget this. You don't understand me, man. You understand what I'm going through. You don't understand the social demands of my life on top of the educational demands of my ridiculous teachers. Why can't you cut me some slack? Why can't you give me more freedom? Why can't you relax the house rules a little and let me breathe? I'm suffocating. And as parents, we look at our kids and think, why won't you just listen? Why won't you just listen? I'm not making extreme demands of you. I'm not asking for the moon. I'm trying to raise you into a respectable adult and instill in you good values and a solid moral compass. And you just want to slack off. You just want to disobey. You just want to jump on the couch. You want me to treat you like an adult, but you aren't one yet. And so to crack down on that behavior, I'm not going to loosen up on my rules. I'm going to double down on them. Obedience. Something that sounds so simple. It makes a lot of sense, but it's so hard to practice. Because with obedience, there comes like this sense of fairness. You treat me right and I'll obey you. And if you obey, I'll I'll treat you right. It's similar in respect to that manner, right? And in the way that we look at it, as you say, you got to give respect to get respect. There's a balance there that is, man, it's really hard to achieve. Because we don't live in a world that plays by the rules. We We don't live in a world where we can count on fairness. How many times have I heard my kids tell me, Dad, that's not fair. And how am I to respond? I can't make life fair. I just can't do it. I can't make life make sense. I can't do that for my kids, and I certainly can't do that for myself. That was made abundantly clear to me this week. On the screen here, you're going to see a picture of my baby. That's my little one. We don't know if it's a a boy or a girl at this point in time. We've we've kind of held off. And and we got some hard news on Monday. We got some hard news on Monday. We found out that our baby has a, uh, a condition by the name of trisomy 18, also known as Edward syndrome. What that means is, is that when... This little one was conceived. Something went wrong. It was just a mutation. There isn't a, a fault on anyone's side. It's not because 
I ate, you know, too much chips and dip or, or Karen didn't exercise enough. There's, there's nothing on, on either side there. It just happens. And, and we've got one more little, uh, or some, I don't know, there's, there's more of the, the, the 18 gene than we need. There's three. There's only supposed to be two. And because of that, my child probably isn't going to make it out of the womb. Um, most pass in the, uh, in the first trimester. But a lot of them, like, they go a little longer than that. And, and, uh, and so at this point, we could, like, the baby will probably die any time between now and delivery. And if it makes it to delivery, it's, it's not supposed to make it a year. Uh, it might make it 10 days. And that's not fun news to get. That's real hard. And so you sit there and, and you try to like deal with that. How do, we, how do we deal with that? How do you deal with that in, in the light of fairness? And I know like all of us have, have things in life where it just feels like we got handed the, the raw deal. And that's, that's hard. It's hard to know. In, in some ways, we almost wish we had to know. In, in uh, Men's Bible study, we've been going through uh, Ecclesi- um, Ecclesiastes, and one of the lines in Ecclesiastes, it doesn't necessarily always say that way, but it's, it basically says, like, ignorance is bliss. And it would be nice to just not know. But we know and that's, that's really hard. That's really, really hard. What's fair about this, right? What's fair about trisomy 18? What's fair about Edward syndrome? What did our child do to have to struggle with something like that? What did our family do to have to deal with the pain and the loss that that little mutation is bringing us and will bring us. And I know that, you know, we're not the only ones that have questions like this. We're not the only ones that have faced loss or a hard road, troubled times. Some of you are facing loss right now. Some of you have walked or are walking that road But one thing to know is that God does not bring hardship on us in the form of punishment. Our baby's not being punished because of something we did. That's not not how this works. It's not being punished because one of us lied or because one of us stole something or because one of us had impure thoughts. And you're not facing hardship because of that either. These are the results of living in a broken world, a world where sin is present. Karen and I were talking this past week about how much more real to us Psalm 23 is now. You know, I've always, I've always pictured walking through the valley of shadow of death, meaning my death. Meaning my death, going through, through a hard time for me. But man, we feel like we are walking through that valley right now. Not because of our impending departure, but because of the impending departure of a little one that we haven't even met, but that we love so very much. Dealing with loss is not fun. It's not fair. And it's really hard. 
And so how can God expect obedience when he lets things like this happen in the world? He lets things like this happen to people that love him. He lets things like this happen to people who are about as innocent as we can be. I know that child's got sin in it even as, even as it is there, but uh, how can he expect obedience? But here's the thing. There isn't a relationship between fairness and obedience. There isn't a relationship there. As much as we may feel like there is one, as much as we may feel like we want there to be one, and that's why we respond out of those ways, there isn't a relationship there. And this was made very clear by the life of our Lord Jesus and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus led a perfect, sinful life. He didn't do anything to deserve the death that he received. But because of us, because of the brokenness that we as humans, as sinners, have brought to the world, he had to die. And I sat in my office and I wept for my little baby this past week. And as I wept, I, I thought of the times that Jesus wept. There are few in scripture that, but, but three of them really, really stood out to me. The first is John eleven thirty five, 35, famously known as the shortest verse in the Bible. And it reads, Jesus wept. It's because Lazarus has died. And, and we get that, that Jesus would be emotional here. <clears throat> this is like one of his best friends. Considered his, his best friend. But it loses some of its punch when we realize that after Jesus received the word that Lazarus was sick. So Jesus wasn't around. He was gone. He was over a different area. And he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And after he gets this word, he delayed getting back to Lazarus. He delayed going. They're like, please, come and heal our brother. Mary and Martha, they send out word to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, our brother's sick. Can you come heal him? And Jesus hears about it. And he's like, yeah, we'll get there, but we'll get there eventually. He delayed getting to Lazarus so that Lazarus would die. And Jesus wanted Lazarus to die. Now, that's weird to say. That's a word sentence to utter, but we read it in, in Scripture. He wanted Lazarus to die so that he could raise him from the dead as a demonstration of his power and that he, God, might be glorified through it. We see that in verse 4. So don't believe me. It's in John, uh, uh, John eleven four. But it is shortly after that. So Jesus gets there. He gets, he gets to where, where Lazarus is. And Lazarus has died. And everybody's sad. And it is shortly after the weeping that Jesus raised Lazarus. And then he turns to, the tears turn to joy. So he comes late. Lazarus is dead. Jesus sees everybody crying and he starts weeping. Jesus starts weeping as well. So if Jesus knew all of this, if he knew that, that he was going to raise him from the dead, and, and, and he delayed his coming so that this, all of these events could happen, why did he weep? He knew the outcome of the story. He set the story up. So why did he get caught in the emotion of the story itself? Because he loved Lazarus. And Lazarus was dead. Because he loved Mary and Martha and their brother was dead. 
Because even though he knew the end of the story, he cared so much for the players in the story that he was affected himself. The second time that Jesus wept that struck me this week takes place in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. This passage takes place right before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So he's got the donkey. You know, he's already sent the guys out to get the donkey. He's got the donkey. And he's about to head into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna and the waving of palm branches. But as Jesus rode the donkey, Jesus rode the donkey, we read in Luke 19, 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus then goes on to remark about how that city would not recognize what a wonderful day this truly was for them. And that because of that lack of recognition, the destruction that would follow. Jesus is sitting on a rise, surveying the city of Jerusalem. One of the biggest days of victory that he had, the day that he would enter Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he is weeping. He's weeping because even though this is a day of victory, he recognizes the brokenness of the world. He knows the pain that he is about to go through. He knows the pain that the people he loves will go through, the pain that will be experienced because of this broken world. He knows what the price of his obedience to his Father will be. He knows that in spite of his great love and the sacrifice that he is about to make for his people, for all people, that not all will recognize him as their Lord and Savior. And the last situation in which Jesus is weeping that was brought to me this week is the Garden of Gethsemane. Here we have the perfect example of true obedience. Jesus knows his time is coming and he has asked his disciples, his, his dear friends, to stay up with him, to keep him company in this, his hour of true and absolute sorrow. None of them are able to. And so he is alone praying in the garden. And Luke twenty two forty four tells us that he was in great anguish, in great pain, that he was sweating drops like blood. And in this state, he appeals to the Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What a picture of obedience. Jesus wasn't excited about the journey ahead. He wasn't excited about the pain that he would be experiencing. He was pleading with God to take this cup from him, to take this responsibility away from him. He didn't want to go through what he was about to go through. And yet in spite of this, in spite of how he hadn't earned the humiliation he was about to receive, in spite of how he hadn't earned the death he was about to die, Jesus, he didn't throw a fit. He didn't rebel in some way to stick it to the old man. He said, yet not my will, but yours be done. What a picture of obedience. Obedience and fairness have nothing to do with each other. We see that so clearly in the story of Jesus. and So we need to separate them in our minds. Instead, let us remember, as, as Paul has so faithfully pointed out, that our obedience and leadership is not as much a reflection of that relationship that we have with the other individual 
as it is a reflection of the relationship that we have with God, which sometimes makes it worse. Because who of us can obey perfectly? There have been times this week that, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to obey anymore. Wrestling with the emotions of, of the truth that had been presented to me. You know, I, I thought things that I shouldn't. I yelled at God in, in ways that I, I shouldn't, you know. I'm, I'm not happy about the position that I've been put in. I'm not happy about having a baby that I'll never get to meet. And so there are parts of me that have rebelled and yelled and, and thought things that are not honoring to God. And while we may find that somewhat excusable because of the week that I've had, my lack of obedience does not just come into play in areas of my life that seem justifiable. We can understand when a father rebels out of love for their child, but can we understand when a man thinks lustful thoughts about a woman who is not his wife? Can we justify a father taking his insecurities out on his children? Obedience is required, whether our sin is justifiable or not. So how are we doing with that? How are we doing with living a life of obedience to God? Not as well as me, eh? Thanks be to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For because of his life of obedience, I have hope in spite of my disobedience. I'm going to say that again because that is so important. Because of his life of obedience, I have hope in spite of my disobedience. None of us can live a perfect or true life of obedience to God. He knows this. That's why he sent Jesus. That through faith in him, we could be covered by him. That our sins would no longer be counted against us. And that through that faith in Christ, we would have the righteousness of God. The righteousness of Christ. We are still called to live lives of obedience. We don't have a free pass to sin. But our disobedience is not the end of the story as it once was. For now, we have hope in Jesus. Now we have hope in the cross. Now we have a hope that will not disappoint us. But that because of faith in Jesus, we will one day be reunited with God in heaven. And in heaven, Karen and I I will be united with our little one who's been affected by trisomy 18. We know that God has the power to heal, to rewrite the DNA with this this little one here on earth. We We have another that is an example of God's power, his provision, his ability to heal. And he may choose to do that, which would be wonderful. But whether our baby is healed here on earth or up in heaven, we wait on God's will to find out. And that's true for all the pain, all the hardship that you are going through in your life. Time here on earth is temporary, and God is the great physician. He will heal all of our hurt, all of our pain. He will remove all of the struggle that we experience here on earth, and he will take it all away 
in heaven. It doesn't belong there. But we're not in heaven yet. (laughs) We're still struggling with our hurt here on earth. One of the things that, you know, I do love about Psalm 23 and about Jesus in the garden is that Jesus does not leave, or that God does not leave Jesus alone to handle his emotions and trials that awaited him. And he does not leave us alone. In the garden, right after Jesus makes the statement of ultimate obedience, God sends him an angel to comfort him during his hard time. In Psalm 23, we see the rod and the staff of God comfort David, and God comforts us as well through friends, through our church, but ultimately through Scripture. As we face the struggles of life, I urge you to lean into Scripture. I urge you to rest in the comfort of fellow believers and the love of your Lord, for he is the mighty counselor. He is the prince of peace. And he loves each one of us very, very much. He doesn't want any of us to suffer alone. What a wonderful God that we serve. Amen.